leave you alone. Hey, I need to run a few errands. Can you watch my dog? Again. We are starting a brand new series today entitled Relational Vampires. And uh, after I showed that promo last week, I had somebody in the church, I won't say who, basically came to me and say, is that about, is that about me? Like, is that about what I would do? <laughs> and I just kind of smiled and said, I guess we'll have to wait and see, right? <laughs> I do want to ask you to open your Bible this morning to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 is where we're going to be. And uh, if I can get my iPad here to do what I want it to do, there we go. We'll go this way then. Um, as we are opening to Matthew 16, I just want to—I want to kind of follow up on something that I think is just so. Uh, it was kind of as I was sitting over there thinking about this. It was so cool to think about how God moves um, and encourages. In the last two songs we sang, there's a line in there that says, "You chase me down, you seek me out." You chase me down, you seek me out. And then we talked about that he's the God of this city, and there's so many more things that he wants to do in this city to, to reach people for Christ. And there's a, there's a mindset in Christianity today, and I don't know where it started or where it came from, but when we read words like, you chase me down, you seek me out, if we're not careful, we can think it's actually more about us. Why does God chase me down? Why does God seek me out? We could say, well, because he loves me. Yes, he does love me. But why does he even love me? Because when he catches me, and when I turn my life over to him, he is glorified. So why does God chase me down? Because for his glory. Why does he love you and I? Because for his glory. Why can we trust that there's greater things still to come in this city? Because of his glory to be shown. And so I just want to, as I was sitting over there thinking about that, I was thinking, man, God, your, your glory is on display through your church. And I just want to make sure we're aware of this, that sometimes it, with great intentions, we start getting wrapped up in thinking it's more about us than him. But even in salvation, and I've said this before, and I pray that you understand what I mean when I say this, and I don't mean that God doesn't love you and God doesn't care for you because he does, and God has done everything possible to lead you to him and to draw you to the cross. But salvation is more about him than it is about you. Because salvation is the ultimate display of God's grace to you. The ultimate display of God's glory to say, look, I'm going to glorify myself by loving these wretched sinners that have turned their back on me. That's how powerful I am. That's how mighty my grace is. And so don't get wrapped up in thinking, oh God, you're so lucky to have me. And I'm not saying anybody here would ever think something like that. Well, God, I went to church again today, so you should be happy about that. Well, we can come before him and say, God, thank you for your love and your grace, and may my life just reflect your glory. That's really where it rests. And so as I was listening to that this morning, I was so encouraged, and I want to share that with us. Um, as we get started about this series, Relational Vampires, the idea here is that there's people that can suck the life out of you. It was kind of interesting. When I was sharing this promo last week, um, I was wearing a Lions jersey, and someone came up to me this morning and said, I don't know if you caught this, 
But when you talked about people sucking the life out of you, you were wearing a Detroit Lions jersey. I thought that could be the greatest physical illustration of that title that I've ever heard. Because being a Lions fan is the ultimate relation, victim to the ultimate relational vampire. Because the Lions promise you everything, take everything from you, and leave you with nothing. Okay? So that's actually a great... So if you're thinking, what's this series about? If you were a Lions fan, how would you feel? That's what this series is about. And so... Uh, but we are excited to start walking through this topic today, um, and I do want to encourage you as we walk this out this morning and over the next four weeks, I want to encourage you to think about just how God can speak to you through his word today and how can he encourage your heart. Relationships, if we're being honest, relationships are extremely difficult. Amen? Relationships are extremely difficult. Why are relationships extremely difficult? Because relationships involve other people. And other people can do stupid things to you, can say stupid things to you, can do hurtful things to you. And because of that alone, because you're interacting with other people who aren't perfect, relationships can be extremely difficult. Relationships at work, relationships at home, right? Past relationships, they have a way of just hanging around and lingering, okay? Did you ever dwell on something that happened like 20 years ago in a relationship, but you're not even in a relationship with that person anymore? Did you ever have that happen? You start thinking about something that happened 20 years ago. Is this mic coming through? Is it coming, cutting in and out? You guys can hear me okay? All right, it just sounds weird to me, so I'm just making sure we're good. No, it's not working, Okay. All right, we're just going to stay right here then. That's fine. When you think about this idea of relationships with other people, when that begins to happen in our lives and we begin to develop these relationships, it can be really difficult because what happens is when they hurt you, it, there's an emotion connected with that. And so when an emotion is connected with a hurt, it lingers. It stays so much longer. I'll give you an example. If someone you have no relationship with says something to you that's hurtful, maybe... I'll give you an example. I worked with someone, completely innocent, no intention behind this. They were uh, talking to somebody, and they, they, were cashier, they were a cashier, and this person was a customer. And as things were going on, this ca- the line got backed up. And as the line got backed up, this, this cashier is trying to do her best and trying to keep up with things, but there was a guy about six people back that just was just going off. I can't believe, what is this, first day? Um, I can't believe. I, you know, they need to train people better. You need to do your job. You need to, but I'm just going on and on. I wasn't there, okay? I was off doing something in the back room. I get called to the register about 15 minutes later. I, was just, I didn't know any of this was going on. I come up front, and the girl is literally in tears. 20-year-old girl just bawling. No line now. Everyone's done and over with. And she just said, I just need to go to the restroom. Can you watch the register? I said, sure. You know, I didn't. You don't know, you know. So I, did, I was up there for a few minutes. She came back about 10 minutes later and, and said, thanks, I really needed that. And I said, is everything okay? And she told me the story. But, you know, while it hurt in that moment, the next day, the day after that, guess what? It didn't bother her. It just, okay, water off the back. It's done. But when somebody you have an emotional connection with, a friend, a, a loved one, says or does something hurtful, it's not so easy to just get over it, is it? Just move on from it. 
See, sometimes in life, people you have no relationship with, they might say something and you don't like it, but it doesn't really sting you for the long haul. But when you have a loved one or someone that you have a, an intimate type, type relationship with, a family member, a friend, a child, a parent, and they say or do something that's hurtful, man, that can really linger. That can really hang around a long time. And here's the thing. Sometimes we don't even know until something happens and it'll just click. And we'll go back to a memory and think, man, why is that even an issue for me anymore? So because of all of that, imperfect people, emotional hurts from loved ones can linger. That causes present relationships to suffer at times, doesn't it? Do you ever find yourself taking a past hurt and projecting that on a future relationship? Because so-and-so hurt me back here, so-and-so, who hasn't done anything to me, so-and-so is going to hurt me up here. And we, we have a hard time disconnecting from those things. But when we're allowing ourselves to fall victim to those things, those hurts are becoming controlling over us. We're, we're subjecting ourselves to those things. They're, they're, control, they're dominating us, and we're giving our whole control of our life over to them. Because we're actually saying, future relationships, I'm going to not even enter into some of these relationships because of the fear of what happened before. And we, we just shackle ourselves to those hurts. So the first thing we have to acknowledge is relationships are extremely difficult, and hurts really do hurt, right? I don't know why this is hard for some of us to really get through. It's hard for me. We think, oh, and I, man, what Mike said is so true. We need to be joyful in the Lord. We need to be happy in the Lord. But if we're being honest, there are seasons where we're still joyful in the Lord. But man, this hurt really hurts. And it's okay to have both of those emotions going on. What did Paul say? Man, I don't like where I am in this tribulation, but I'm thankful because I know God's going to use it for his glory. And so we have to kind of walk this out. So over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about these things and just relationships and how to deal with certain people in your life and how to make sure we're being the kind of person that God would encourage us to be for other people. But to get us started this morning, I want to ask a simple question. By a show of hands, how many of you would say, naturally, you're a controlling person? Raise your hand. Controlling person, raise your hand. Okay, a little higher, a little higher, a little lower. How do you like it? How do you like it, huh? How do you like it? Put your hand down. Some of you didn't get that joke, okay? I was trying to control you, okay? Let me ask this question. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you, if you were trying to raise the hand of the person next to you, you may be controlling. I'm just saying, you may be, that may be a struggle for you. How about this one? If you're sitting there thinking about, and you look to make sure a certain person was raising their hand, somewhere in the church, oh, I know so-and-so better have their hand up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, put that hand up, control freak, okay? If that happened, you're a control freak, okay? And let me just tell you something. I, I could raise my hand to that, okay? Uh, in certain areas of my life, I have, I'm very much a control freak. It's, it's easy. It's, there's my way to do it and the wrong way to do it, right? I mean, yeah, this is, this is common sense, okay? We all, we all just, but be honest, Certain areas, certain things, some of us worse than others, we all kind of battle with this in some degree, don't we? We, call, we all kind of have our way of doing something. We think this is the way we should do it. And if it's not done this way, then it's not done a different way. It's done wrong. Even though it's not really wrong, 
and something still positive comes out of it, it wasn't your way. Do you ever have somebody doing something in maybe a career field, and you come up with a new way of doing something, an idea, and you're all excited, you present it, and they all take board, and you're like, yeah, this is awesome, and they start doing it, and then a few years goes by, and somebody else comes along and says, hey, I got an idea, and they want to change your idea? If that bothers you, I mean, to the point where you're like, no, your idea is dumb. Why? Well, because it's just not my idea. Like, if, that, if that's your process, you might be a control freak. Okay? It's just we all can battle with this to some degree. So how do we deal with controlling people? Because, listen, we can laugh about little things. I always go back to um, early on in our marriage, Sandra and I, when we were first married, and I remember we were loading the dishwasher one time. And we joke about this now. It's just something we, we laugh about. Um, Sandra's not controlling in any way, shape, or form, okay? But in this one area, for whatever reason, and I'm very much like, I, I put it in the dishwasher the certain way. There's a reason for this. You don't need to ask me why I put it in the just, just know I did it the right way. It's fine. So we load, I load the dishwasher. And as I load the dishwasher, I look over it, and I notice that she come over, and she was rearranging things in the dishwasher. So I'm rinsing the dish. I put it in the thing, and I turn around, and I see her moving something. And I'm like, and I was so offended, like, what are you doing? That's like, I did a great job. Like, you can't do better. Well, she may have organized it a little bit better in some ways, but that's beside the point. But little things like that in our marriage, I was like, I need to learn to just kind of, like, it's a dishwasher. Like, who cares, right? But in little things like that, that's one thing. But some of us have relationships with people that it's, it's, it's unhealthy how they try to control you how they try to manipulate you and get you to do what they want you to do only because it's what they want you to do. It's best for them. There's no consideration for you. It's just a controlling type relationship. So I want to walk this out this morning. How do we deal with controlling people? I want to look at an example in the life of Christ where someone tried to control Christ. Someone he had a relationship with tried to control him and manipulate him to get them, him to do what they thought was best. Matthew chapter 16, look at verse 21. Matthew 16 and verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. What is that? Suffering the things from the priests and the elders, killed and raised the third day. What do we call that now? That's the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, this is the gospel. So should we be thankful for verse 21 or unhappy about verse 21? We should be extremely thankful. Because if Jesus doesn't do what he said he was going to do in verse 21, you and I have zero chance of being saved, zero chance of being redeemed, and our only destiny for all of eternity is a place called hell. But because Jesus, in verse 20, says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem. Jesus was committed. He said, I'm going to do whatever is required. I must do this. He was determined. And he's showing it unto his disciples. Now, this wasn't the first time that Jesus talked about the resurrection, talked about dying for the sins of the world. He often told his disciples, this is what's going to happen. And, this, and they never got it. Even after Jesus was crucified, they really didn't get it. So Jesus is explaining to them, this is what's going to happen. 
Now, you're in Matthew 16, you know some time's going to take place between now and him going to Jerusalem. But when he gets there, he is determined. Everything he does between this point and there is a purposeful step. This should be a good thing. We understand this is a great thing because we're on this side of the cross. We see the importance of this. Look at verse 22. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto you. Peter, one of his disciples, one of the ones that was the spokesman for the disciples, a close friend to Jesus, somebody who loved Jesus. We pick on Peter a lot, right? We pick on him because we think, well, yeah, but look, he denied Christ three times in one night. You've denied Christ way more than three times in one night. For being honest. But look at Peter. He cut off this guy's ear. Why did he grab his sword and cut off that guy's ear? Because he was defending his friend. They will not take you, Lord. I'm going to get your back. I'm here for you. But here we see Peter, because of his love for Christ, because of his lack of understanding, challenges the very gospel. Challenges what Jesus came to earth to do. And he doesn't even realize it. And so how does Jesus respond to someone trying to control him and manipulate him into out of what he knows God has called him to do? I'm going to ask that we would bow in prayer and ask the Lord to speak through us through his word this morning. Father, we ask that you would lead, guide, and direct. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in all these things. We pray that you would help us understand that with people in our lives, whether they know it or not, Lord, that they're trying to control us and it's unhealthy, it produces stress and worry and anxiety in our lives. Lord, I pray that you'd give us wisdom in that. I pray that we would learn how to love those people, encourage them, but also make sure, Lord, that we're thinking about what you have for us in our walk with you. Father, again, thank you for all that you're going to do in our lives through the preaching and teaching of your word, and I pray that we would open our hearts and minds to it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Peter, with a great love for Jesus, tried to control Jesus, tried to control his decisions because he could not understand how Jesus dying is a good thing. I mean, let's be honest for a second. If you were Jesus' friend and he's telling you, I got to go and I got to suffer all these things to the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, I got to be killed. As a friend, what is your initial reaction? What would your reaction be if your friend told you this? You would say, Man, that can't be what's going to happen. I, no, I don't want that to happen. And why do we say that? Because of our concern, because of our care, because we don't want to lose our friend. Man, I, I love you and I want you in my life. I don't want to lose you. So short-sightedness, they can't see the big goal, the big picture, because of the momentary struggle or suffering of losing a friend. Interestingly enough, this interaction with Jesus and Peter follows Peter's greatest moments during the earthly ministry of Christ. If you read in the verses before, you're going to find out that Peter spoke up as the spokesman of the disciples and declares that Christ is the Son of the living God. Peter had his rock star moment, his big moment. Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they give all these responses. Well, you're John the Baptist reincarnated. You're Elijah. You're all these things. He doesn't even pay attention to the popular opinion, by the way. Do you notice Jesus never got caught up in the popular opinion? If they wanted to reject him as Messiah, 
That's your call. But then he goes right from that and says, okay, 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 okay. Who do you say that I am? See, this is what we do. We can very easily tell Jesus who everybody else says he is. Well, you know, those that practice the Muslim faith, they believe he's this. Or those that practice this, they believe he's that. And we critique all these other opinions and views of Jesus. But then Jesus looks at us and says, well, who do you say that I am? And we say, oh, God, you're the son of the living God. You're Jesus Christ. You're my Savior. And he says to us, I believe, through the word, as an example in other disciples' lives, and by the moving of the Holy Spirit, you can say that, but do you really live as though that's true? Or do you live as though I'm just a prophet? I'm just a good teacher? I'm just a moral teacher? Like, you can say you believe these things, but do you really believe these things? So we can very quickly answer, as the disciples did, here's what everybody else says you are, Jesus. But then he says, who do you, my disciples, those that have walked with me, those that have loved me, those that have seen me do great things, who do you say that I am? And they sit in silence before Peter, the one that we pick on all the time, had the courage to speak up and say, you're, you're the son of the living God. You're Christ Jesus. You're the Messiah. And right after that rock star, big mountaintop moment, Peter has one of his weakest moments. He doesn't even realize it. He doesn't even understand. In verse 22, the Bible says that Peter rebuked him, rebuked Jesus Christ, which actually means to admonish or charge sharply. Basically, Peter got up in Jesus' face, got all up in his business and said, you're not doing that. Not so fast. No, 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 no. You don't understand, Jesus. That's not what's best. Think about that. Peter is trying to control Jesus. At this point, he's no different than any Pharisee, any religious leader that's trying to control Jesus. He doesn't understand, though. He doesn't see what the problem is. And so I want to walk this out. How do we understand and deal with controlling people in our lives? We're going to come back to Matthew in just a little bit and look at how Jesus does this. But I want to give you a few points to understand first. When we're talking about understanding controlling people, there's two great weapons, the two greatest weapons that controlling people like to use. And if you're taking notes, I encourage you to jot this down. The two greatest weapons of any controlling personality or person, number one, threats, and number two, guilt. The two greatest weapons of any controlling person is threats and guilt. Threats are things like, if you don't do this or that, I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do that. This is a common one and can manifest in many, many forms. How many of you are firstborn and you have younger siblings? Firstborn, younger siblings, raise your hand. Okay. You're guilty of this and you just don't know it, okay? And you might say, who are you to judge me? I'm a middle child, okay? So, yeah, middle child soapbox moment for a second, okay? Some of you are like the middle of like eight, so I can't even comprehend that, okay? Dinner must have been crazy, it's like literally like stabbing people and like spears come out. Like, get off my chicken. It's mine. Yet when you were a kid, did you ever play a game as a younger sibling with your older sibling? And they would have this whole thing set up, this whole game, rules and the whole nine. Older siblings love making rules. I don't know why. It's just they do. Okay? They're always the teacher or the leader or they pick who's on what teams. It's just what they do. Okay? And then you say something like this. Well, I don't want to play that way. And then they'll say well, then I'm going to take my stuff, and you're not playing anymore. This is also on the playground. What do they say? I'm going to take my ball and go home. That's a controlling, that's a threat. 
You don't play my way, I'm not going to play. You don't do it my way, I'm not involved. Now here's the thing. When we think about it in that context with kids, well, it makes sense. They're immature. But with adults, it should be different. In marriages, it should be different. But listen, if, if you have fallen victim in your marriage or in any relationship to where you've been tempted to say, well, yeah, but I'm not doing that because they didn't do this. Or I'm not doing that because they're not doing this. Or you know what? I am going to do this because they did that. Be careful. Because the next step, and you may not be there. I'm not talking it's full blown. But it's, it's the beginning of this thinking of like, I'm going to use threats to get what I want. I'm going to control this person I'm in a relationship with, and I'm going to make them do what I want. And if they don't, I'm just going to threaten to take this away or to stop this or to not do that. Honest moment. As parents, we have to be careful of this. I have to be careful of this as a parent. Now, listen, I'm not talking about consequence, okay? It's a big difference. If, if my children know that I have to do these chores to be able to earn my screen time, and they don't do those chores, chores, when they lose their screen time for the day, that's not a threat. That's a consequence. You didn't do this. If my son comes home from school and says, I didn't study for my test and I failed, my teacher threatened me with a failing grade. No, that's not how that works. If your boss says, if you don't show up to work tomorrow, you're going to lose your job. That's not a threat. That's a consequence. So we ha- And it's a promise too. That's right. Yeah, somebody said that. It's wisdom speaking. We have to understand this. There is a difference. In relationships, we can't threaten people like that. We have to be careful there. But someone that's controlling might fall into this trap. Guilt. Guilt. Very similar. Guilt. This is where they attempt to make us feel bad, but it is a false guilt that they create and comes only because they think we should feel guilty by not doing what they want. So listen, some of you really need to get this. And here's why, because some of you are in these relationships right now and you're surrendering so much of yourself to somebody that's controlling you through threats and guilt and you're losing your freedom and you're not living the life that God has for you because you're bound to this relationship. You need to make some changes. And we're going to give you some wisdom on how you can change the relationship, maybe rearrange the dance, if you will. This guilt, again, it's it's a false guilt. Again, this doesn't mean if I get pulled over by a police officer for going 65 in a 55 and they issue me a ticket, I can't say, you know, you're trying to make me feel guilty, aren't you? You want me to feel bad about this and I just don't because you know what? I'm not going to accept your controlling personality right now. (laughs) You're probably going to get taken out of the car. There may be a taser involved. I hope not for your sake, okay? And another ticket, yes. Maybe even a little time in the back seat of the cop car okay that's what is that that's still a con that's real guilt if i break the law and i'm held accountable for that that guilt i'm being put under is not false guilt is it it's true guilt i i did something wrong if i hurt someone in a relationship and they come to me and say i just want you to know that hurt me what you said is that false guilt or real guilt it's real guilt if i really said something hurtful so we got to be careful. You can't just kind of put a broad brush out there and say, all of this is that or all of it. But say, okay, in this situation, did I really do anything that requires me to feel guilty? Or maybe the biblical term, conviction. Do I have anything to repent of? Should I feel sorry for this thing I said? And if I come back and say, I, 
I didn't say or do anything. It's just I'm not doing it their way. I'm not looking and acting like they want me to. It's all based on that. Then that's a false guilt, and we can't fall victim to that. I want to go over to an Old Testament example because it's one that came to my mind when I was preparing for this message, and it's one that comes to my mind often when I think about this idea of false guilt. Go to Judges, all the way back to Judges. Judges chapter 16. We will go back to Matthew in just a little bit there, so you can keep a spot in Matthew. Some of you are like, thanks for telling me now. I've already moved the Bible marker. Some of you know how difficult this is to stand still for me, so pray for me for the rest of the service. Woo! Tell you what, man. It's like, talk about bondage. Like, okay, anyway, so... So, thank, thank you for the encouragement. Judges chapter 16. So I want to look at verses 15 and 16, and, and we're not going to read all of the story of Samson and Delilah. We're not going to read even all the story of Samson, but I want to, many of you know this story of Samson and Delilah. Samson was a judge of Israel. Uh, at this time, Israel had no king. There was no ruling king in Israel. And so before that, God ruled Israel. And when Israel would get out of line or commit sin or drift from God, uh, God allowed uh, consequence to come from that. And so usually another nation, another people group would come in and oppress the people of Israel, put them under judgment, if you will. The people would cry out in repentance, repenting of their sin. God would then send a judge to to save and redeem the people of Israel. They would get right with the Lord. They would live in a way that would honor him and they're close to him. And then over time they would drift Right? They would fall into sin. God would send judgment. They would cry out for, a ju- for repentance and mercy. God would send a judge. This whole cycle went on over and over and over again in the book of Judges. Samson is one of these judges, and he comes to set God's people free from bondage. But as he comes, he is beginning to drift in his own walk with the Lord. He's beginning to drift out of what God has allowed him to do. He was so strong and so powerful and so mighty that he allowed that to begin to build a pride in him. And he began to think things like, I'll just do what I want. I can say what I want. I can be with whoever I want. And I love the story of Samson for another reason too. And study it if you have time. Samson's parents did the right thing, by the way. So many times we see children, teenagers, older teenagers, young adults, making these bad life choices. And we're so quick to go, well, but if mom and dad would have, be very careful there. Because you really don't know what mom and dad did or didn't do. And I I know what the Bible says. If you train up a child in the way they should go, when they are old, they will not depart from it. I get that. But at the end of the day, individuals make choices. So mom and dad could do everything, not perfect, because there's no such thing, but everything good and, and right and prayed over their kids and loved their kids and showed Jesus. And that child could still get to be 22, 23 and make some really bad life choices. Then some time goes on, they may repent, come back to the Lord, and there's restoration. But I want you to know, Samson's parents tried to say, no, 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 this isn't right, this isn't good, you shouldn't do this. But Samson allowed his lust to lead him, not his Lord. And so where does lust lead us? Never anywhere good. Lust for someone or lust for something. And Samson found himself in a very bad situation with this woman named Delilah. And so again, another point. So many men will say things like, well, yeah, but it's Delilah's fault. It wasn't Samson's fault, it was Delilah's fault. Now, Delilah didn't help Okay, She knew what she was doing. She was obviously trying to manipulate Samson, as we're going to get to in a moment. But Samson's not a child either. Samson should understand, this is what God has for me. This is wrong. I should not do this. 
But Samson continually gave himself over to lust. And so again, both have blame here. So as we look at the life of Samson, I want to look at one of these moments of controlling personality using threats or guilt. I'm going to read verses 15 and 16, and you tell me what you hear here. Verse 15, And she said unto him, How canst thou say, I love thee, when thy heart is not with me? Thou hast mocked me these three times, and hast not told me wherein thy great strength lies. And it came to pass, when she pressed him daily with her words, and urged him, so that his soul was vexed unto death. What is Delilah saying here? She says one thing, If you love me, you say you love me. If you really loved me, you wouldn't keep messing around and screwing with me and you would tell me the truth. What is your strength? How do you have such strength? Three times you've mocked me. What does that mean? You're making fun of me. And you say you love me. Your heart's not with me. Should his heart have been with her to begin with? No. What is she trying to get him to feel? Guilt. So that he'll what? Do what she wants him to do. While it is true that if you love someone, they should respond or act in a certain way or speak to them in a certain way. If you love someone and someone says they love you, they should treat you in a way that is good and loving. They should say kind things to you. They should be loving to you. But if you're not receiving that love from that person, you have to be so careful that you don't, in an attempt to get the love that they say they have for you, try to manipulate or control them with guilt. Here's the thing. You can say, you know what, you, you've said you love me so many times, and I want to believe that, but I just want you to know that this or this hurt me. And I'm not saying, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you that this is how I feel, and I just want you to know that. It's not, you say you love me, but you're not doing what I said. It's not this harsh thing, but it also, listen, it also doesn't mean we're a doormat either. Okay, you following me? I don't just lay down and take it, but I also don't rage up and get all angry and tell them, well, you say you love me, but you don't really love me because you're not doing what I want. I've got to be so careful here. Delilah's motivations are clear to us because we know why she said and why she was doing what she was doing. When someone fails to act in a way that is in accordance with their profession of love for us, we must share that it hurts, but not try to manipulate or control them. So I want to look at a few things that Samson could have done differently that would have helped him to be avoided or avoid being controlled. I say avoid being controlled. What is Samson's response to this manipulation technique? He gives in, he tells her the truth, and he loses his strength. He gave in. He said, fine, okay, all right, fine, here, I'll tell you. He tried three times to stay strong and tried not to give in, but he finally gave in because the guilt worked. Controlling people don't usually give up. Controlling people won't stop. They keep hounding you and hounding you and hounding you in a, like a nagging kind of a way. And that's what Delilah did here. So three things to know that will help you against controlling people, to not be controlled. Three things to know. Number one, you need to know what you are called to do. You need to know what you are called to do. Samson needed to know what God's plan for his life was and not allow Delilah to manipulate him into trying to meet needs he wasn't designed to meet. He could have very easily said, I'm sorry you don't believe I love you, but I'm not called, or I am called, to be this for God, and I am not going to tell you where my strength lies because that's not something you need to know. 
This is where God's called me, and I'm not going to allow you to control me. He could have stood strong on his calling. But he also gave into the lie that he thought, okay, Delilah's needs aren't getting met. I've got to meet all of Delilah's needs. I've got to meet all of her needs. As a husband or a wife, you need to understand this. As a husband or a wife, you are not designed to meet all your spouse's needs. So stop trying. It's so tiring to try to meet all the needs of another person. It's so wearisome, isn't it? To try to meet all the needs of another person. To be perfect in all things for that person. To always be there. To always have this done right. And always have that right. And then when you fail or you don't get it done right, you feel all the guilt. But it's a false guilt because you're not supposed to carry that weight. You're not called to meet your spouse's or anyone's needs in entirety. There's only one person that can meet everyone's needs in entirety, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. So you do what God has called you to do. You love your wife, you love your husband, you love your children, you love your neighbors as yourself, you, you love others and you preach Christ to them, you love on them with the gospel, you, you share, you serve, but there's limitations there. And it's okay to tell someone, listen, I will not always be there for you. Isn't that one of the lies we, we want to live but we know isn't true when we say it? You ever tell a friend that, if you're being honest? I'll always be there for you. That's a lie. What you mean to say is, I want to always be there for you. I will try to always be there for you. But really, it's such an unfair expectation you're putting on yourself. You can't. So why carry the guilt and the weight of that? Just know what God has called you to do. Walk in that. And that will give you strength to resist controlling people. Number two. First, you know what God, or know what you are called to do. But number two, know when someone is trying to control you. Be aware of this. Pay attention to this. Samson needed to look beyond the lust he had for Delilah and realize she did not have his best interest in heart or mind. So we know when someone is trying to control you. Quickly, we also need to know when to draw a line in the sand. So we need to know what we're called to do, know when someone's trying to control us, and no one to draw a line in the sand. Samson should have drawn that line, and it would have, if he would have walked away from that unhealthy relationship, he would have spared himself much turmoil. Imagine Samson's life if he would have drawn a line in the sand in this passage and said, No, Delilah. No. I think I do love you, but I'm not going there. I'm sorry that hurts your feelings, but I don't feel that's appropriate. I'm not going there. See, here's the thing. So many times people say, if you loved me, you would do this. But if they really loved you, they wouldn't ask that of you. Right? They wouldn't ask it of you. And again, I'm not talking about basic understanding of loving someone and just being kind and loving. I'm not talking about it's a free ticket to just hurt someone. I'm saying that if somebody's using that to try to get you to do what they want you to do, then you need to realize, man, this person's trying to control me and I need to draw a line. Listen, sometimes the best thing you can do in a relationship is put distance there. Draw a line. I can't go there. I'm sorry that you don't understand that, but I can't go there. We need to understand our role in relationships. Quickly, I want to give you these things and then we're going to wrap up. Understanding your role in relationships. The relationships you have are a combination of two things. As I was preparing for this message, I read this and an author's work, and I love this. It's so good. The relationships you have are a combination of two things, what you've created and what you've allowed. 
what you've created and what you've allowed. Think about Samson. Why was he in this situation? Why did Delilah have this control over him? Because he created the relationship and he allowed it to continue. What you've created and what you've allowed. What you've created. These are tendencies with a purposeful thinking. I'm, I'm going to purposely put these things into place in my relationships or these relationships I seek out. They're not necessarily good or bad. It's just with intent. I seek out this relationship. Many of you did this with your spouse. You sought out that spouse. You created the relationship because you desired that relationship. And you can't get out of it now. Just saying, okay? Just, it is what it is. I'm just kidding. Not that anybody would ever want to. I'm just saying, okay? We've created sometimes friendships. You seek out friendships. You've created those relationships. It's not necessarily good or bad, but we should use wisdom in what? Relationships we've created or are creating. Look at that individual and say, is this somebody that I want to be friends with and can be friends with? See, this is another thing. Just because we love someone doesn't mean we have to be best friends with them. Just because you love someone doesn't mean you give them all the influence over your life. You can love your coworker as Jesus loves them. Love them as you love yourself. Pray for them and encourage them. But if there's somebody that is distant from God or doesn't know God, the Bible says you shouldn't give them counsel over your life. But you go to them with your problems and your struggles and you wonder why their advice is so weird compared to Scripture? Because you love them, yes, but there needs to be a, a line. This is where our relationship is. And there is nothing wrong with that. So what have you created in your relationships? What have you allowed in your relationships? These are tendencies that are passive and not necessarily bad, but again, we just let it go on. Well, you know that's just how they are. It doesn't have to be that way. These are things that you've created or allowed. You have more control over your relationships than you may realize. You can decide who you allow into your life and give influence over your life to. We create healthy patterns in our relationships or we passively allow unhealthy patterns to arise. And the truth is, if you don't like what you have in a relationship, here's the beauty of it. Change it. Change if you don't like something in a relationship, change what you expect and change what you accept. Change what you expect and change what you accept. You have more control in these relationships than you realize. Change what you expect. Have God-honoring goals set in your mind for your relationships. God, I want to honor you in my relationships with my friends, with my kids, with my spouse. God, you're the one that I'm desiring to please in this. So my goal, my expectation is to please you in the things I say. We spent a whole bunch of time on this. We spent time back in the summer, conversations with God about what we say and how we think and how we act. God, I want to honor you. These are the expectations that I have. But I also don't have unrealistic expectations. Again, going back to, I don't expect to meet all this person's needs. I don't expect to meet my spouse's needs 100%. That's not realistic, and it's only going to lead to destruction and guilt and chaos. So I change what I expect, but also change what I accept. Realize that you, with God's wisdom, can decide what healthy boundaries you need to accept. This means maybe I have unrealistic expectations of a relationship with someone else. Or if someone tries to control you, you can say, I love you. Hear me now. I love you, but I will not let you speak to me like that. You change the expectation. You change the acceptance. I love you, but you will not say that to me because that's not appropriate. I love you, but I will not let you treat me this way because that's not healthy. 
I love you, but I will not let you control me. You begin to change and redefine. Again, as an author I read this week said, the dance. You change the dance. I love you. I'm not mad at you. But this is where the line is. And we're okay with that. Because we still love them. We still pray for them. We still serve them as best we can. As Jesus said, that cup of cold water. But we don't give them complete control of our lives. Listen, Paul said, I will not be brought under subjection of anything other than Christ himself through the Holy Spirit. He's the one that controls my life. So anything that tries to rob that control from God is an idol. And we have to decide, no, there's only one that has control of my life, and it's Jesus Christ. I'm not going to surrender my life to this relationship or that one. Not complete control. So we change what we expect. We change what we accept. So what's going to happen when you do this? What's going to happen when you do this with someone in your life? The first thing you need to understand is they are going to double down. Hear me now. They're going to double down. More guilt, more threats. More guilt, more threats. I'm going to tell you right now, and I, I understand people in this room have been through different situations in life. There's some in this room that have gone through a divorce that was not of your choosing. You did not want it. You did everything you could to stop it, but it happened. Some of you have made choices in relationships that were not the best choices before you were married. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're living with someone that you're not married with. And I understand those relationships can be complicated. But I want to tell you right now, I truly believe that in marriage, you want to change what you expect and accept, don't use the D word. Don't even let it into your vocabulary. Don't even say the word. Because if you're in a fight and a struggle and that one, of your, one of the spouses throws that word out there, the first time it's awkward. The second time it becomes more normal. The third time it's like, okay, let's just do it. I'm telling you, you want to guard your relationships, change how you speak, expect different things. No, we're going to work at this thing. Or, no, we need to draw a line right here. And I understand this is a short message on this idea, and I'm not trying to answer every question in that area. I'm just telling you, for me and Sandra, it's we just discerned it early on. That's not even going to be part of our vocabulary. Like, no, we're going, to, we're going to work this out, no matter what comes down the road. And praise God, she hasn't killed me yet, okay? We did say the D word. The M word was never said we couldn't say, but the D word was, okay? That murder, you know, she's never said we can't say that word. Change what you expect. Change what you accept. And listen, if some of you are in situations where you're in unhealthy relationships, change. Take control of it and say, no, I'm not going to allow that. If some of you have been victim to these kind of relationships and now you're on the other side of it and you're looking back, you're saying, man, I wish I would have known. Well, you know now what you know. So live in a healthy way from this point forward. Stop beating yourself up for past things. And this is all good. But you're sitting there thinking, man, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. Let me use another example of this kind of controlling relationship and how it's going to look when you start to try to take control back from someone. You ever been in a grocery store with a child? And the child sees the candy that's always by the register. I just want to lovingly punch somebody in the face when you see the candy by the register because you know why they're doing it. And your kid sees it and they start freaking out for candy. And you're just like, you know, I, just, I was this close to the door. I almost got out and I didn't have to even deal with candy. But now you put it by the register. They see the candy. Okay? And what is, let's say a two-year-old. What's a two or three-year-old going to do when they see candy? And you say, no, little Susie. Candy's not good right now because you haven't had lunch yet. What's Susie going to do? Oh, well, thank you, Father, for your wisdom and guidance. I'm so thankful you're guarding my appetite for lunch. 
No, they're going to throw a temper tantrum. And they're going to cry. And they're going to scream. Why? Because they're trying to use guilt and threats to get what they want. They're trying to take control of you. Now, good parents, which I've not always been, should do what? You can cry as long as you want. You ain't getting a candy. Normal parents, which I've been more often than not, give it about 15, 20 minutes, and then what is it? Okay, fine. You give them the candy. But you know what you do? You whisper in their ear, later, no one's going to hear you. Okay? It's just you and me later. You can have your M&Ms now, but later, mm-hmm. yeah, you know what's coming. I'm just kidding. Don't do that, okay? Don't, don't scare your kid like that, okay? No, but a good parent says what? I'm not going to allow you to control me because I know what's best for this, and I'm not going to let that happen. But a child doesn't understand that. So guess what happens when you try to take control back from a relationship of someone controlling? A temper tantrum. No, it's not. It's going to throw this big fit. And you just, you just stay strong. I know, I know what God has called me to do. I know you're trying to control me. I'm drawing a line in the sand. And it's okay to do that because you're focusing on what God has for you. And again, this is all good. And if you're sitting and thinking about someone else up to this point, you're thinking about that controlling person in your life. It's all good because they need to and they need to. And if they would just stop trying to control me. Scary application point. You may be the controlling person. I may be the controlling person. I may be using threats and guilt to get people to do what I want them to do. So it's not just about, oh, those controlling people out there. It's God, in what ways, even minimally, am I falling victim to this thinking? Because again, as I said at the beginning, we all struggle with this to some degree. We need to pray about this. God, give me wisdom in my relationships. Help me to honor you in my relationships. And again, let me be honest with you. When you're witnessing to somebody and you tell them, listen, the Bible says you need Jesus Christ to be saved that there's no other way to be saved other than Jesus Christ, you're not threatening them or guilting them with false guilt or false threats to get them to do what you want. You're sharing truth and love with them and saying this is the truth of it. So again, we, need to, we can't just lump it all together and say, oh, well, you can't do that. You're controlling them. No. It's a different spectrum. It's a different way of thinking about it. I want to give you a couple questions to determine if you are being controlling in a relationship. Just a couple questions. Don't answer out loud, but just to think about it. And then we're going to close by going back to Matthew in just a second. So a couple questions to think about to help you determine if you are being controlling. Why do you buy gifts for your spouse or loved ones? Why do you buy gifts for your spouse or loved ones? Why do you buy gifts or give gifts to a friend? Is it to bless them, or is it because you know they're going to give you something in return? Are you using that to control them? Why do you want your children to behave in public? Why do you want your children, if you have children or grandchildren, to behave in public? Is it because it's best for them to learn that discipline? Or is it because you don't want to be embarrassed and you don't want to be pointed out as a bad parent? So you're controlling them to make your image look better. Why do you compliment other people? Why do you tell somebody, good job with that? Or, man, you look really good today. Or, or man, that was great how you did this. Is it because you really want to honor them and praise them and just rejoice with them in that? Or is it because you know they'll say something back to you? Well, you look good too. I mean, why are we doing these things? What's our motivation? Is it really because we want to be a blessing to them? Or are we really kind of hoping, you know, the old adage of the old joke, and I hate culture, 
in a lot of ways because some of that stuff seeps into our thinking. The old joke is, well, a husband will buy something for his wife on Valentine's Day because you have to, and I don't want her to be mad at me. So a couple things, and I say this, like, I know it's kind of jokingly as we say this and think about it, but it's culture. As a husband, if you're buying a gift so your wife won't be mad at you, you're buying it for the wrong reasons. Don't even buy it. And as a wife, if you're sitting there like, I can't believe my husband didn't buy me that, stop being controlling. Husband, if you're buying it so that she'll let you do something in the summer and go on that golf trip, don't buy it because you're controlling her. Do you see what we're saying here? We've got to think this way. No, I, I want to do something for this person because I just love them. I don't, I don't want anything back. And it's amazing how when we start thinking this way, the freedom that comes from this. You're not under the weight of someone else anymore. So go back to Matthew chapter 16. Some of you are like, great, now I've got to find it again. Matthew, first book in the New Testament, you'll find there. As you're turning there, if you struggle with controlling other people, and to be honest, as I do at times, we are actually playing God. We're trying to be God in their lives and tell them what they need to do. But the truth is that you are not God. I am not God. And we would make a horrible, and we do make a horrible God. We must realize that we are not God because we cannot control that person we love to do what we think they should do. If you have a loved one that is battling with addiction, you cannot get them to quit. You can't control them. You can't make your, your loved one that's an addict quit. You can't. So stop trying to be God. Rather, love them and do what you can do. Give them over to God and let God change them. Let God be God in that. If you are battling with kids that seem to be out of control, you can't control them. You do what you're called to do. You love on them. You, you give discipline when appropriate and in what ways you feel fit as a family to do. You, you encourage them in the right things. You set the boundaries, but they're still children, and you have to let God change their hearts. If you have young children, teenagers maybe, or even adult children that are prodigal, that are gone wayward, you can't control them. You can't guilt them into coming back. You can't do that. But you can pray for them. You can love them. You can draw lines in the sand and not enable them. No, I'm not going to bail you out again. It's tough love, but it's something. No, I'm not going to let you control me. But I love you. And I'm going to pray God will get a hold of your heart. Because at the end of the day, you can't even control you, right? I need God to control me. I need to surrender to him so that he will lead me and guide me. So how did Jesus respond to Peter's attempt to control him and his decisions? Look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, and then we're going to close. Matthew 16, verse 23 says this. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou servest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know what Jesus was telling Peter? He wasn't calling him Satan, by the way. What he was saying is, if you read the rest of the passage, what does he compare Peter's actions to to that of Satan? You're not thinking about the things of God. You're thinking about the things of men. You're not allowing yourself to trust and have faith you only see what man can see. What was Satan's great sin? I will ascend to the throne of God. I will sit on that throne. Pride. 
He tried to make himself like God, and he was cast down for it. And Peter is trying to play God and tell Jesus what to do. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You, you can't even comprehend the things of God and the mind of God. You only think like the things of men, so stop trying to be God. And in fact, stop trying to be God so much that you actually lay your whole life down and follow me. It's complete surrender. We give complete control over to him. As a follower of Christ, we must surrender all of our will to his will. Not controlling other people, but encouraging them, loving them, giving them truth in a loving and honest way. Not so they'll do or be what we want, but they can be all that God has for them to be. Would you bow your heads with me this morning as we short time of invitation? As you there, as you're there with your heads bowed and you begin to pray, I know that this message was not exhaustive. I know that I did not touch on every single avenue that this could apply to. And, and I pray that you would God, allow God to speak to you through his word in the coming weeks as you study this out. But I want to encourage you as your heads are bowed there right where you are. It is so difficult to love certain people in our lives. Maybe you are thinking of someone that was, has tried to and or is trying to control you. And you know it. You know what they're doing. It's so difficult to love them, but it's not impossible. By God's grace and God's wisdom, we can love them, even if it means loving them from a distance, if that's what's best for your walk with the Lord. We can love someone from a distance. We can redefine the dance and be at peace with what we accept and what we expect. For those of us who are battling with controlling someone else because we believe what we think is really best for them, we desire in a loving way but to try to control them, we don't mean to, we don't mean to, but we think it's what's best. And maybe we would come forward today and bend a knee and just say, God, I, you know I struggle with this. I just want to trust you, and I'm going to ask that you would give me wisdom in how to move forward. I pray that I would stop playing God because you know that's not my desire. But I pray I would trust and surrender to you and give this person over to you to love them and encourage them but not to control them. Help us to be surrendered to your will. And stop trying to be God in other people's lives. Whatever it is that God is doing, would you respond to him this morning? Father, we pray that as only you can, that you would lead, guide, and direct in all these things. Father, help us to trust you and to trust you today. Lord, for the one that's in a relationship that is unhealthy uh, with a controlling person, I pray that they would redefine the dance by your grace. To love those people still, to pray for them and encourage them as they can but to redefine the dance and not allow that person to control them and lead them into destructive decisions so father for the one being in a relationship with that or the one that is here today that's battling with control maybe we would just all together realize we need to be surrendered to you that we would pick up our cross and follow you because you are the one that died for us you are the one that did all for us and we can live our lives in honor of you for your glory and for your praise for anyone here today, Lord, that doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that they would come to know you today, whether they're in their seats or maybe they want to come and talk to somebody up front. They would come to know what it means to really know Christ, to be forgiven of their sins, to believe that you died on the cross for their sins, were buried and rose again on the third day. So, Lord, may anyone here today or anyone listening to this online, may they understand what it is to be forgiven, what it is to be saved. May they surrender their life to you with joy and trust in you because you have done all for us. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we are led in a song of invitation? Would you respond today to whatever God is doing and whatever God is leading? Would you respond to what he has for you as we sing?